to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. How are you? Good morning, Richard. Good to hear from you. Good good to hear from you again. It's been a while. I would say so. Actually, I would say it was on a KPIX, I believe, TV show about the war on drugs that was then raging hot and heavy. And we were there to present alternative views. And by the way, I correct myself. Normal stands for the National Organization to Reform Marijuana. I want to be correct on that. And yes, we were on KPI together, and it's been a long haul. As I recall, you've been the head of California Normal for over 30 years now. Yes, uh, so it is. I was hoping we would legalize everything earlier than this, and I could step down and retire, but things keep getting dragged out. Uh, actually, when I started out on this, I said uh, my goal was to get marijuana legal in California, and then when that was done, work on LSD um, in my retirement. Unfortunately, I'm past the formal age of retirement, and marijuana is actually pretty legal under California. It's legal under California state law, but we still have this huge federal problem looming over everything, so it really isn't fully legal, and uh, but uh, I'm glad to see that uh, psychedelics are coming on strong now in the wake of uh, the progress we've made with marijuana. Please give us some uh, baseline history. Give us a little history of normal itself, and then we're going to talk about some of the wonderful uh, contributions that you and your team made to marijuana law in California. Well, normal predates me. It actually goes back to uh, 1970. Uh, we just uh, almost had our 50th anniversary celebration, except it was uh, canceled due to COVID. Uh, I was not involved with normal back then, but uh, I got interested in it in the late 80s. I had uh, done graduate work at Stanford on, in public policy, specifically on FDA drug regulation. Uh, I had always been a little bit upset about the rather uh, dictatorial way in which the government handed, handled drugs. And I wrote a PhD dissertation called uh, Consumer Choice and FDA drug regulation, where I argue that FDA should do more to help people make their own decisions rather than try to preempt everybody's decisions itself. That PhD dissertation, by the way, had absolutely nothing to do with uh, psychoactive drugs. Uh, it was pharmaceutical drugs. But I had this interest in the psychoactive drugs, too, and I had long been sort of an anti-prohibitionist just by general libertarian political uh, persuasion. And um, in the late 80s, uh, as you may recall, the drug war started coming down real hot and heavy in California. Uh, they, uh, they brought in helicopters to the North Country and started you know, chasing the hippies out of the hill, grabbing people's property. And by, the, by about 1986, uh, the, the, when I first went to a normal conference in Oregon, uh, there was a... Uh, uh, 
sort of the the the, the reform movement was sort of uh in, in, in serious trouble because uh, at that time the crack epidemic had hit and if you asked Americans what the the nation's number one problem was everybody would say it's illegal drugs and that meant crack but it also meant marijuana and everything else out there and you could barely mention anything about having anything to do with or taking any illicit drugs or uh, without serious risk to your career, except I must say if your career was working for normal, which I wasn't yet. But in 1986, I went to this conference in, in Portland, was really inspired by the speeches I heard there by attorneys speaking specifically about the civil liberties aspect of the war on drugs. And um, right afterwards, I learned, I got on the normal mailing list and learned that California normal director was retiring. They needed somebody to take over. Uh, and it, the office, it was, it, it was begging for someone to go there. Uh, you couldn't expect much pay, but I had some independent income that I could rely on. So I, 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 I took it up in, in January 1987. I started working for California Normal and trying to dig out of the hole. Um, and my thought at the time was, this is the time to get in the movement because things could not be worse than they are now. Uh, with the, uh, the anti-drug outrage that was going on. And as it turned out, things did get a little bit worse for the next couple years. Uh, but they turned around in 1991 um, when I had the uh, chance to meet this uh, uh, Dennis Perone, the uh, famous... A gay and marijuana activist in San Francisco, who at that time had got the brilliant idea of doing a medical marijuana initiative in San Francisco, which I thought was a totally brilliant idea because nothing else was working. Uh, prior to this, I should mention, there had been a hemp initiative circulating. You're familiar with Jack Harrow, the author of The Emperor Wears No Clothes, written this pot boiler about how, you know, marijuana and hemp will be the same thing, and, you know, we should legalize hemp. And he had a whole very ambitious, overly ambitious, I would say, unrealistically ambitious initiative to legalize hemp, which we tried to take out to the public, and there was zero interest in in anybody sign, signing it. It was like pulling teeth. Uh, I, I remember going out to the Rock Ridge BART station trying to collect signatures. Whole trains would empty out and I would not get a single signature from them. Uh, I was pulling in about two signatures an hour, which is just terrible in the uh, uh, petitioning uh, uh, profession. Anyhow, so against this bleak background, Dennis Perone comes up with the notion, hey, you know, hemp, mar the, the marijuana, it's, it's a pretty ambitious thing to try to legalize it here in California. But suppose we look at this medical marijuana, um, because at that time we had the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco, and a lot, the AIDS community had discovered that marijuana was helpful for uh, appetite loss and nausea and things like that. 
uh, associated with uh, AIDS, age wasting syndrome, as they called it. And the the, uh, the AIDS community was also very well organized, as was the gay community. And Dennis was right there in the midst of it, and he had a crew of, of followers he could bring together and petition and get things on the city ballot. And I joined with him on that, and that was sort of my baptism in actual uh, politics. Um, uh, what, getting that initiative written up, presenting the signatures uh, at City Hall, and uh, qualifying for the ballot. And um, I really thought it was a stroke of genius on, on Dennis's part. Now, going into that election, it was an off-year election in 1991, uh, we were expecting we would do well, like 65% or something like that. Uh, there were a bunch of other the initiative we had did not really have the force of law. It really, you couldn't really change the law, and San, San Francisco couldn't do it. But you could have a resolution declaring that you're in favor of the medical use of marijuana and so forth. And that's what it did. Um, so we figured we would, you know, come in with a good two-thirds of the vote, which is what feel-good initiatives did. But lo and behold, when election night rolled along, we came in with 80% of the vote. And when we saw that, we knew we had latched onto something big. There was, I think, a lot of hidden resentment about the whole war on drugs. It was sort of bubbling up to the surface in one of the more enlightened cities around. And the medical designation was just critical. And from that, a movement started. So, you know, uh, activists started doing the same thing elsewhere. Santa Cruz had a medical marijuana initiative after that. Um, we got city councils to sign on. Um, there were people getting arrested for medical marijuana, which generated publicity that was always redounded to our benefit and got the, the city of uh, San Diego to pass a similar resolution based on the arrest of an AIDS patient, Sam Skipper, for growing some of his own pot down there, and so on and so forth. So we gathered momentum, and before long, the uh, legislature started to take the matter up. Um, and uh, a couple, uh, a resolution by Senator Henry Mello, uh, uh, just a resolution of the legislature, medical marijuana uh, passed easily, um, didn't need the governor's signature. Now, the governor at that time was Pete Wilson, unfortunately, who was uh, really playing the, the anti-drug card, the Republican anti-drug card at the time, and he was hostile. So after the Mellow Resolution, Senator Marks had an actual bill to, so, to Deschedule marijuana, whatever that meant in California. It's not clear what it would have done. Uh, the bill passed, but it got vetoed. And uh, then things started to heat up a little bit, and we came back with a more meaningful bill uh, with Senator Vasconcellos, uh, which was basically like Proposition 215, and then it would legalize the possession and the cultivation for personal use of marijuana for medical purposes given a doctor's recommendation. Um, now, th that bill, uh, it was a tough going year. That was in 1994, and that was the one year in recent memory when the Republicans actually controlled the assembly by a slim vote. Um, 
But that didn't matter. We got through the assembly, even with the Republican control. Uh, the bill got passed, and uh, uh, and Governor v uh, Wilson, as we expected, uh, vetoed it. Fortunately, because actually the bill got watered down terribly uh, to satisfy the District Attorneys Association so that the bill would only apply to four medical conditions like AIDS and cancer and I think uh, glaucoma and multiple sclerosis, missing one, which is in fact the, the most important one with chronic pain, uh, and a whole bunch, hundreds of other uh, conditions actually. So, um, Governor Wilson, we had gotten a bill through the legislature that legalized cultivation and possession, and it had vetoed by the governor a perfect opportunity for an initiative, a statewide initiative. And so Dennis and I and a group of other people teamed up to put an initiative on the state ballot, which became Proposition 215. And okay, let, 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 let me yes. stop you right there. Yeah. Before, we, before we nationally historic Proposition 215, can you remember your very first experience with a psychedelic substance? It was on Thanksgiving 1966. I was 20 years old. Uh, got some, uh, uh, some functional ditchweed, uh, and we smoked it in a dormitory at Columbia University with towels under the door and everything else. And I saw little cartoon visions in my head. I wasn't impressed much, but after that, a friend landed some hashish, and I listened to the Rolling Stones and was blown away by the new depth that I was suddenly discovering in the music. And uh, in that sense, you know, I, I, I discovered, viewed marijuana as a mind-expanding drug. It, it, it heightened your appreciation of the senses, the, of, of both... Uh, uh, sound and music and taste. Food was a wonderful, uh, you could explore food and also art. I would go to the art museum, uh, smoke some hashish and, and dig the, dig the uh, paintings. So uh, all of those things I appreciated. That was on March 31st, 1968. A friend of mine from Columbia, in fact, and I and my girlfriend uh, went down to Hilton Head, South Carolina for, for a um, vacation in a beach rental that we had down there. And my friend had landed a couple of tabs, little pink pills of LSD, which I was really interested in having heard all the, the backstory about LSD. I really was fascinated by trying it. My girlfriend stayed straight uh, to uh, just hold down the fort. And besides, she was a little bit scared of, of doing it herself. So we took these tabs of LSD and um, sat around by the fire. Um, and all of a sudden started to slip into this strange new world where I noticed that the fire had snakes and dragons in the wiggling around in it. And it was beautiful. And yet at the same time, it was the strangest experience I've ever had. And I've never had an LSD experience like it since, although I've had many since. It was like, I didn't feel any different. It was like, this was an everyday occurrence. Like, 
why didn't I always see dragons in the fire? Why didn't the world always look like this? My girlfriend, a bowl, she had been uh, making some cake batter and she had cleaned out the bowl and there was there was a little bit of batter left in sort of stripes around the bowl. And I remember we were peering into it and seeing the stripes melt into the bowl and come back. And it was clear we were in this whole new world and we were, uh, and yet, as I say, it felt like the most ordinary everyday thing in the world. Um, I, I, the, whole, the whole day was magic. We went out to the beach looked at the Atlantic Ocean there, and the scene in front of us looked entirely two-dimensional. There was no depth at all. It was like you saw a line, a line of waves up on top of each other rather than lined back, you know, stretching back into the sea. Uh, it, it, it was like a painting of the sea almost. Um, and again, uh, my friend and I started uh, were wa watching a seagull together, and we decided to watch to see, you know, how far we could follow the seagull flying out in the distance. And we were watching, and it flew and got smaller and smaller. And all of a sudden, pop! It just disappeared from view, simultaneously for both me and my friend. And it occurred to us, well, all our lives, you know. Seabird sites like this have disappeared from our visual field, and we haven't been aware of it. But here we saw it just disappear like that. So, I, as I say, I was totally fascinated by that. And then we came back, uh, and uh, my girlfriend prepared dinner for us, and we listened to the radio and listened to listen Lyndon Johnson announcing that he was not going to run for president again. So it was. A, Totally memorable day, March 31st, 1968. I, I had one un, rather unpleasant experience with it a couple years later. And I'm sort of, I, it was a bad idea. I don't, I can't remember how I came across this LSD, but I was alone at the moment and not in a good space. And I took it and um, had confronted what I felt like the emptiness was in my life at the moment and uh, sort of scared me off for a, a while, turned me off. Although I, I realized it was a, just a bad time and a bad thing to do then. And then uh, I landed some uh, something that was uh, sold as mescaline, but I don't think it was, it was a little, purple pills that were you could crunch they were they tasted like malt but the effect i was very much like what i have later associated regularly with lsd and let me just say again i have never had another experience like that first one i had where the lsd seemed like the most everyday experience in the world uh ever since when i take it i feel I'm coming on. I'm somewhere else. You know, there's a buzz or there's a feel about it. Uh, and uh, But these purple mescaline pills, which were, I have no idea, so-called mescaline, which I think were sort of like the LSD that was going around in tablet form or, or in um, uh, other circles. Uh, anyhow, I found 
very manageable and illuminating. Uh, and I, I would, I, I remember going to see like 2001 Space Odyssey and seeing a lot deeper meaning, reading very heavy deep meaning into the movie, you know, again, under the influence of this drug that I could pretty much use in all sorts of different settings uh, without getting overwhelmed or anything like that. I had uh, just genuinely uplifting um, uh, experiences with it. But I think that the deepest experience came uh, after I moved to California in 1972. I drove out here from the East Coast, which I'd gotten fed up with, and uh, drove up Highway 1 and stopped by Big Sur, which was a place I'd barely heard of. And there was this place, Nepenthe, which I had never seen before. It was totally magical. And I met this gentleman there who was associated with Esalen. And he said, say, would you like some LSD? And I said, well, sure, why not? And I got some from him, like a dozen uh, clear window pane tabs. And I didn't take it right then, but a friend of mine, I took some with my friend at the beach, at Pfeiffer Beach, in fact, if you know that one, uh, down yes. at Big Sur, a couple months later, and had one of the most, my the first of many really very profound, wonderful experiences seeing nature in its full glory and uh, feeling our, my unity with the cosmos. And um, at, at that point, it became a really important part of, I guess, my whole uh, personal Weltanschauung uh, of philosophy, my religion, so to speak, uh, because I... I uh, uh, yeah, uh, psychedelics became my religion, I would say, as a result of that and similar experiences, many of them out in nature, uh, and all of them connecting with the greater cosmos. What can you tell us about your what you learned about yourself? Well, my big takeaway, I mean, I, I won't say that it gave me any perceptions about me personally, but you know, I became more open to the rest of the world and felt more like I was a living, vibrant part of the rest of the world. Like, uh, 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 I felt like I was, there was a universal energy network, a network of consciousness out there that I was connected to and that I was part of and responsible for. So. It, I, I was more than my, it was more than myself that I was accountable to. It was the entire cosmos out there. And also, I'd say sensitivity to others. Um, yes. Which may have also been related to marijuana, by the way, because I, marijuana uh, helps one develop empathy, too. Um, I remember before marijuana, I had a very sort of classical, narrow, Western education, 
view of things, thinking that was, you know, the highest civilization there was. And, and uh, I, I, I couldn't appreciate why would people go out, you know, uh, go out in the, uh, like, the Indian, like the American Indians and chant and, you know, run around fires and do all of these ceremonies. I mean, it was all seemed like nonsense to me. And uh, um, again, music other than sort of straight classical type of stuff, um, I, I thought was sort of out, you know, not interesting. And then I began to appreciate those things, and I began to feel I, I would what it would be like to be uh, uh, a Native American out dancing around the campfire and communing with the Great Spirit. And uh, I, I was able to project myself more and uh, empathize with different cultures and different modes of consciousness. How many times do you think you've taken it? Uh, over a hundred, I'd say. Okay. I did. A, I did it a lot back uh, before I before I got married and had kids, and then I didn't have so much time. Uh, I've taken it occasionally since then, but on special occasions. An estimate of the size of the dose. I wish. I really wish. But mostly what I took were these blotter tabs that were selling. They were selling uh, sheets of blotter for about $300 for 100 of them, as I recall, at the Grateful Dead concerts. And we had two or three or different blotter sources that we had used. I, I have some... Uh, some of that is still around in somebody's refrigerator, I believe. Um, uh, and I think, I mean, I was, I, I've heard later that that kind of acid was typically on the order of somewhere between, you know, 80 and 120 uh, mics and could be. And sometimes we took a couple of tabs mm -hmm. and sometimes we only took half a tab. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now we're going to come out of that. Now let's take us to the march towards Proposition 215 in the late 1990s. Well, it won. We knew it would win uh, because we had such a tremendous public reception for it. Uh, D Dennis Perone's Medical Marijuana Buyers Club in San Francisco was this wonderful uh, institution, um, you know, a uh, big five-story building on Market Street with thousands of members uh, who, you know, where people could hang out uh, at on two or three different floors, talk to each other, uh, socialize, uh, meet doctors who were experts in medical marijuana, like my good friend, uh, the late Dr. Todd Micaria, who taught me a, a lot about the med medical value of marijuana, which I'd really been unaware of until I got involved in the medical marijuana movement. I was originally just thinking, you know, marijuana sh should be legal because uh, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and it was like alcohol and so on and so forth. I was in, in it for the fun, and I didn't realize how much it was used for medicine until, well, talking to Dr. Micaria and, uh, of course, seeing Dennis's patients, uh, but also from my experience uh, answering the California Normal Hotline. Um, early on, I discovered that I was getting a lot of calls. I would say one out of three calls 
I was getting were for people who uh, wanted, who were using marijuana for medicine and wanted to know how they could do it legally, or who had gotten into trouble, been arrested for growing marijuana for medicine, and were, were, uh, needed legal help. And I was really, what really got me too, you know, it, when I first got involved in this, I, I had heard there were stories about marijuana being helpful for nausea, from cancer chemotherapy, and for glaucoma. And that was about what I had heard. But these people were not calling for that reason. And they weren't calling because of AIDS either. They were, call, they, they were calling for other sort of rare uh, conditions, usually involving chronic pain, um, uh, uh, fibromyalgia, uh, 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 back, um, broken backs, uh, accident and trauma that cause uh, neuropathic uh, uh, pain. Uh, uh, I learned what neuropathic pain was from listening to these people. Um, uh, you, you'd have uh, people with rare uh, in autoimmune diseases that Dr. Micaria would help uh, acquaint me with, uh, scleroderma, um, uh, God, the, uh, um, trying to remember all the polysyllabic words, uh, but uh, we ended up compiling a list of 200 different distinct uh, uh, medical indications uh, ISMO uh, 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 indications for which marijuana was providing benefits for some people, at least. Uh, I went through Dr. Help, Dr. McCurry. I went through some of his medical records. And we just listed the different conditions there, and there were over uh, uh, 200 of them. So I was really impressed by uh, how many different medical uses there were. And the world started to learn about it through Dennis's Club because Dennis's Club became the World Information Center for Medical Marijuana. And he would have um, uh, um, the press coming in from around California, from around the country, from internationally. They would come in and here they would find these patients, you know, all ages and colors and sexes with all sorts of different conditions who would give this really impressive testimony about their personal experiences with medical marijuana. And we got terrific press almost every time. So I knew when we got this Prop 215 on the ballot that it was likely to pass because we were getting such a favorable reception for it, even though... Give a, give a description of what Prop 215... Well, Prop 215 uh, was just uh, basically the, the Vasconcellos bill brought back and fortified. What it said is that uh, Californians sh uh, could, could possess or cultivate, keyword, or cultivate marijuana for their own personal use given a doctor's recommendation or approval. It was very short. Um, it was actually a little shorter than it should have been as it turned out because there were some legal loopholes there that we didn't, that we should have filled but, but didn't. But it was deliberately broad and it did not mention, it said for any condition 
for which marijuana provides relief. And that was really important because we knew from Todd McCurry's experience, we, we knew that you couldn't just listen that there were too many conditions. And we also knew that it's actually standard for, for any legal FDA-approved drug. I knew this from my FDA work. Uh, it's legal to give any FDA legal drug to anybody for any condition. Any, a doctor can prescribe it for any condition, regardless of what it, it's labeled for. You can use, you can give it to unlabeled indications. So we were very insistent on keeping the uses open, completely open. Um, and uh, that, that proved very powerful and very important. And of course, the, the cultivation for personal use was extremely important because finally, for the first time, uh, we were providing a legal supply of marijuana, which had been illegal in the U.S. since 1937 and in California since 1913, actually. Uh, so this is the first in, uh, in almost a century for time that there was an actual legal supply of this plant for medical use. Uh, and, and that was really uh, important. Actually, I was a little bit dumbfounded uh, by the government, federal government's reaction to Prop 215. I thought, well, if the largest state in the country makes this stuff legal, the federal government's going to have to do something finally about it. And uh, I was very naive about it, because in fact, what it inspired was the very opposite, a crackdown to try to put a stomp on this thing and put a stop to it entirely. Um, so there were a lot of legal battles that got fought back and forth, and a lot of people got arrested, and there were federal cases that emerged. But um, it was always our opinion that um, federal law in so, uh, it shouldn't really apply to the personal use of marijuana, which is what we were legalizing there, because it was not interstate commerce. And we thought if we could get the right case, uh, we might, in fact, argue that before what was at that, that time a still a, a conservative Supreme Court, not as conservative as it is today, um, just on the grounds uh, of, that it, it exceeded the gov federal government's normal powers. Um, and the opportunity came by, actually. We had, we had a willing... And, uh, a uh, plaintiff uh, in Angel Rach, who uh, had, I think it was a party of yours. I met at a party of yours, Richard. He had, she had a, a whole bunch of very severe medical conditions having to do with some sort of benign tumor in the brain, as I recall. That's right. But there were other. That's right. Uh, uh, they, you they, met Angel at. Cool. Yeah. And so she, she really wanted to, to, you know, have have a legal case on this, um, but you know, uh, unless she was arrested, it was sort of hard to make a good good grounds for a case. But as it so happened, while we were thinking about this and what kind of a lawsuit we would like to have, a lady named Diane Monson, up in uh, gosh. Now, which county was it? I think Lake County, uh, or was it? 
I, I may have that wrong. Oh, no, it was in Butte County. It was in Butte County. Had a small medical garden of about half a dozen plants uh, that she was using for severe back pain. And as it happened, a DEA team came through to bust her neighbor for a large pot grow. And as they came by, they saw Diane Munson's garden and said, well, look, hey, you got a marijuana garden. We're going to confiscate it. She said, oh, no, no, come on. I'm a Prop 215 patient. And she called in the DA of Butte County. And the DA of Butte County said, yeah, she's right. Uh, she's a medical patient. She, you, you don't have, you shouldn't arrest her. But they arrested Diane anyhow, and they took her plants. So we had a plaintiff. Here was somebody who had been growing for clearly for personal use under California's law recognized by the voters of California as a right by California voters, and the federal government had taken her marijuana from her. So uh, Diane Monson, together with Angel, filed as plaintiffs, and that got a certiori uh, got us in the courts, and we even won a fabulous decision from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals upholding Angel Rach's right to use marijuana for medical purposes, saying basically on the grounds that it wasn't interstate commerce. Uh, and they had some other precedents in the Ninth Circuit on other unrelated, actually on gun-related um, laws that were similar, where they had made similar decisions. So, uh, for so when, when that decision came down, it was actually the law in the Ninth Circuit in California, uh, pending, of course, review by the Supreme Court. Um, uh, and we, we were hopeful that we could win in the Supreme Court because uh, uh, it, the notion of limiting government powers uh, of interstate commerce when it came to purely uh, local events had, had, had already... Uh, taken hold, there'd been a couple of decisions by Clarence Thomas and uh, Justice Rehnquist, uh, the Lopez decision and others, where they had restricted federal jurisdiction. Um, one of them was a, a, a gun-free zone regulation, and they said, uh, no, the federal government doesn't have uh, authority over possession of guns in this locally under this particular law. Um, I have to re review the Lopez decision. Anyhow, we had precedent on our side, so side, and we, we had a conservative court, and we thought we might win there. But uh, unfortunately, politics intervened. I think the key thing was uh, uh, Justice Scalia, who had been a big proponent of limiting uh, the interstate commerce powers, and had been in favor of the Lopez decision and other similar decisions, choked on this one. Uh, and now uh, Scalia, of course, was a cultural conservative and didn't think much of marijuana. Uh, in fact, at the hearing, at the court hearing, um, uh, he referred to the uh, our friends at WAM at the Women's Alliance of Medical Marijuana in Santa Cruz had been a uh, a 
large and very successful uh, uh, collective cultivation project down there that had actually won exemption from federal law following the Ninth Circuit decision. And that had come to the Supreme Court's uh, attention and Scalia cracked, uh, about, yeah, I hear the hippies are using it in the hills uh, and, and sort, sort, sort of joked. Um, and uh, then we realized we were in trouble that Scalia wasn't sounding like he was on our side. And what the fact was, Scalia was angling for an appointment to be the next Supreme Court uh, uh, Chief Justice at that time, because it was thought that that slot would open up and he, he very much wanted it and it would have been impolitic for him to, you know, side with us on the marijuana. Anyhow, he, he was against us, had a total made a totally unprincipled argument from his standpoint, um, saying, you know, sort of, well, the general welfare clause, uh, 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 general public uh, interest or something like that overrules. Uh, so you lost the angel. So, so we lost the case. And, and what were the ramifications? Well, we, we had ongoing co conflict with the federal government for, year, for years thereafter. The feds came down, yes. they... They uh, moved against Scott Imler, had a, uh, uh, in Los Angeles, in West Hollywood actually, had a very tightly run medical cannabis club specifically for the HIV community down there that was working in cooperation with the West Hollywood city government, which had helped them buy the premises actually. And um, uh, the federal government and the Bush administration uh, shut them down and uh, forfeited the uh, property. The really important thing that had happened was this law allowing personal cultivation had allowed for patients to establish these collectives. So you were seeing patient collectives arise all over the state and over the country uh, in one form or another. And people were seeing that, hey, it was you know, you could have these these little shops where marijuana was being sold, and nope, it wasn't causing any problem. The sky was not falling in. The donut shop next door was making good sales. These seemed like reasonable people, uh, and it made people feel more comfortable with marijuana. Um, but they were not comfortable with recreational use until, and I can give you a date on it, December 2009. Um, uh, uh, December 2008, excuse me. Uh, we used to poll on this regularly, and even though we could get favorable results on medical marijuana, recreational marijuana never polled well. In California, you couldn't get 40%, and if you got 40%, you had 40% more strongly opposed to you than in favor. And it was that way throughout the Bush administration. And there was just a feeling that this was just asking for too much in this culturally conservative atmosphere. Right after the election, when Obama was elected, all of a sudden, this poll came out that showed 52% support for legalization in the West Coast. And maybe borderline support on the East Coast. And it was like, all of a sudden, the tide of public opinion had changed. And it wasn't anything that we at Normal did, or that the Drug Policy Alliance, or the movement did at all. It was 
general public opinion changed when they saw change was possible. That was Obama's motto. And you could, you know, say goodbye to Bush. And all of a sudden, uh, the public attitude had, had turned around. And we've been riding that wave ever since. Uh, of course, it took a while to to, to build a comfortable model for uh, a margin for legalization. And I think one of the factors, too, has been the aging of the population, because, as you know, the uh, uh, my generation, the baby boom generation, uh, born from 1946 and after, were all much more positively disposed to this idea of legal marijuana than the elders uh, b before us. Your generation, Richard, are you still there? I'm listening to every word. Okay, I lost your picture. Um, oh. <laughs> anyhow, um, so... Uh, uh, so the, the generational turnover has been very important as well. And so now, you know, for the first time, we're seeing senior citizens like myself uh, using marijuana uh, openly, sort of like they would have back in the 60s, because our generation is really more familiar and comfortable with it. Uh, and I think that's been a big factor in leading to the legalization. Now, I'm not a I mean, I, I don't want to go into all of the ins and outs of the actual legalization initiative in California, of which there were a couple and there were various efforts. And I was not particularly, uh, my number one choice was not the Prop 64 language that we ended up adopting, which I think has been too complicated and too regulatory and uh, too, uh, too burdensome in general. Uh, but it, uh, nevertheless, it, uh, legalization under Prop 64 has had the tremendously beneficial effect of uh, pretty much emptying our jails and prisons of marijuana offenders, which was a really big deal. Um, and I'm really glad that that's happened. And I think the whole the whole country has started to feel the same way. And I think the opiate epidemic has contributed to that too, because now so many people back in the heartland People who were not, who were the Okies from Muskogee, who would never have thought of themselves as druggies, found themselves caught up in drugs through the opiate prescription, and they realize that it's not you're not necessarily an evil person when you get caught up in drugs, and that criminalization is not the best way to handle it. Um, so I, that's been a very hopeful development, and I, I'm hopeful that we're going to see uh, full decriminalization of drug use in general uh, coming on. And uh, also, uh, it, there appears to be a, a lot of interest now in psychedelics as well, thanks in large part to the uh, research that uh, MAPS uh, and Rick Doblin have uh, sponsored that's really advanced uh, MAPS and psilocybin, uh, um, MDMA and psilocybin, and uh, hopefully LSD. So those are all hopeful developments. But I hope it doesn't get bogged down in uh, uh, the way uh, marijuana did under Prop 64, but we'll see. Now, which is near where you live, passed some historic legislation to uh, certain substances? Uh, well, yes, actually. 
First of all, I will say in 2004, Oakland was the first city anywhere to declare itself for legal text and regulated marijuana for adult use under an initiative, uh, Measure Z, that I was a proponent of. Uh, but that was a very local thing. Uh, but more recently, a decriminalized nature, which is de dedicated to uh, psychedelic plants, entheogenic plant medicine, uh, got a resolution passed out of Oakland uh, City Council in support of that concept in general. And there's quite a lot of interest now, I, as, as I've discovered, in uh, especially in psilocybin mushrooms around Oakland and elsewhere. I mean, Denver has done the same thing, and uh, uh, this is a, a taking off nationally. And what is Oregon? Well, Oregon passed a, a rather elaborate initiative, sort of like uh, Prop 64 for marijuana here, that established... Uh, uh, an elaborately regulated state clinic that will have so these state clinics will sort of have the monopoly on things once they get the regulations together. It's not clear who's going to be eligible. Uh, I thought it was a very complicated initiative, and it did not decriminalize anything at all. And that upset me greatly that they, I mean, I think that's the most basic thing is to decriminalize these things, which is, by the way, there is a bill in the California legislature sponsored by Senator Scott Weiner that uh, looks favorable to pass now that would decriminalize uh, uh, personal possession of small amounts of uh, all psychedelic uh, drugs in California. I would remind you that I think it's favorable to the cause of legalization that we refer to these substances as medicines, because there is a difference between medicine and drugs. Not, not to say that recreational use should not be allowed, because I believe it should constitutionally, but it, we, I, I'm always reminded that this all began with your work towards and Perones towards medical now, marijuana because that was the opening door in the progress that we're now making both for marijuana and psychedelics, right? You're right. And in retrospect, I've come much more to appreciate the medicinal aspect of marijuana. And in fact, I've discovered that it, it was first really introduced to uh, America as a uh, pharmaceutical drug back in the 19th century. So how many states of the union now have either a medical marijuana or a recreational marijuana uh, laws passed? You know, I've stopped keeping count because it changes all the time. But, yes. you, you know, over 40 states have something, some kind of medical marijuana law. And, you know, the majority of them have a decent medical marijuana law. Pretty much all the states except Texas and a couple of plain states. And uh, the legal states are now up, gosh, we're, we're over a dozen of them. And we just had New York come online. And we have the entire West Coast except for Hawaii. Um, so uh, that's moving along. And we, we have uh, Michigan, and there's plans for the ballot in Missouri and Ohio and other places. And uh, polling is very good for this. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats seem to agree that it makes sense to uh, legalize marijuana. Uh, Rick Doblin told me uh, he's expecting that MDNA will be a prescription medicine within the next year or two following the 
trials that are uh, medicine trials that are going on. Um, what is your expectation or hope with regard to when the federal government will make uh, a marijuana or at first step personal use and then legal for recreational use? It's a good question, Richard. Um, as you know, we, there's actually a majority of we've had a majority vote in the House of Representatives for legalizing marijuana. That happened last year, but the Senate is not there, and it takes 60 votes in the Senate, and I know for a fact that there are even a couple of Democrats who are not leaning in that direction, so it's not going to happen this Congress, and it's likely that the next Congress is going to be more Republican and conservative, so I, it, I don't see any federal legalization happening anytime soon, especially since President Biden is against it. However, I do think it's possible that President Biden might reschedule uh, marijuana to Schedule Three or something like that and maybe support some sort of a decrim effort or something on the administrative level. Uh, it's not a priority with him. I know that it's not a priority, but uh, he is in favor of it. And they, the drugs are that he has appointed. Uh, used to manage West Virginia's medical marijuana program. So he knows something about it. So I am hopeful we'll get some federal recognition of medical marijuana, but it uh, before the administration is up. Uh, but I'm uh, not sure what form that will take because uh, or what its impact will be because there's still this problem of uh, a lack of FDA approval and you really need to change the underlying statutes to uh, fully uh, uh, appreciate the, uh, the benefits of uh, the medical benefits of marijuana under federal law. It's a real Gordian knot they've created with all of the uh, anti-drug laws. Are you pleased with the re research that's presently going on in this the countries? regarding marijuana as a medicine? Uh, well, it's still way behind where it should be. Uh, we still have a situation where researchers in the United States can only pretty much do research with marijuana that comes from the University of Mississippi, Zenaida Farm. Uh, you, you know, you or I or our children, anybody over 18 or over 21 can go and buy umpteen innovative and interesting new kinds of cannabis products at the cannabis store here in California, but no researcher, no licensed researcher can use them because they're not FDA pre-cleared. Uh, that's a real uh, a scandal, in my opinion. And uh, again, Congress has, has been talking about doing something about it, but it's so complicated by the way they've written the laws, the Controlled Substances Act, they really can't figure out an easy fix for it. So I don't know how long it's going to take them to fix that. So what you're saying is university are still being held back by old archaic laws in this country. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. I'm on the advisory board of the, of the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at UC San Diego. And, you know, uh, we, we've been wanting to 
to look at some of these things that are out there, like Delta 8 THC, for example, or like, you know, these vape pens, um, but we can't look at them because we can only look at what is produced by the University of Mississippi. Well, I want to thank you very much for sharing with us today, Dale, and for your tremendous contribution, not only to the cause of making marijuana more, more, more available to people who need it for healing, as well as for just plain appreciation of life, but also for the impact that your work in the area of marijuana has had on the new renaissance in psychedelic medicine which you have history with it, which you told us about. So we're going to just, you know, now that I thank you for it, any last comments you want to make about your use of psychedelics aged? You told us about your history with it when you were much younger, but what about right. in your later years? Uh, I appreciate that. Um, I think I learned what I needed to learn from psychedelics uh, a while ago, and that lesson is a very important lesson. It stayed with me. Uh, I don't need to do, use them anymore. However, I have recently discovered this thing called microdosing, thanks to that wonderful book by Ayelet Waldman, and uh, found that microdosing LSD is, a, and I psilocybin as well, but uh, especially LSD, is a very helpful pick-me-up uh, that can uh, really give one energy and uh, uh, help one do a, a really brilliant job on occasion when extra attention uh, is needed. So I, I uh, hope that there will be a more wider availability of uh, psychedelics in microdose fashion. I think they have a lot of potential. Well, thanks again, Dale, and I look forward again soon. Likewise, and thank you for the opportunity, Richard. It's wonderful to speak to you.